Arika Patnode is a licensed clinical social worker who is the director of bioethics and pediatric palliative care at Seattle Children's Hospital. She is also a passionate advocate for health equity and awakening to unconscious bias in medicine and the impact it has on under-resourced and historically excluded populations. I experienced her passion as a call to action in multiple ways. I hope you do as well. Courageous Parents Network has the deep conviction that parents and providers of seriously ill children have the same goal, to give children the best possible chances to live their best possible lives. In all that we do, CPN strives to help these parents and providers mutually understand each other, communicate more effectively, and make decisions together. In so doing, CPN strives to improve the course of care, both given and received. Arika, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today for Courageous Parents Network. This is just a conversation between you and me around your professional journey, but also your professional perspective, particularly in the context of health equity and health equity as a clinician of color who cares about all people, but with an eye towards supporting underrepresented. I'm Erica Moore Patnode, and I'm affiliated with Seattle Children's Hospitals. I'm the director of bioethics and palliative care. I was previously a palliative care clinician on the team. I'm also an ethicist. Outside of Seattle Children's, I'm an anti racist consultant or anti racism consultant. So I live and breathe anti racism work and paradigm in everything that I do, personal, professional, because I have to, because I'm one of those people that I really believe that if I can, I must. And it's almost like a spiritual calling for me. How did this calling come to be? You know, Blythe, I was born into a social justice family. My parents are an interracial couple. My dad is Black and Indigenous, and my mom is a white Ashkenazi Jewish woman who was born and raised partially in New York and in Tucson, Arizona. My parents met during the civil rights era, and it's almost like I talk about often how we live and breathe white supremacy within our society, but in my family, I lived and breathed social justice from the very beginning. The other piece is when I was two years old, my baby brother died. And this is the first memory that I have. He was born at 23 or 24 weeks. And he was considered at that time, it was 1971, 72, he was considered not viable. And he died. And my parents were allowed to bring him back to our farm. I grew up on a 308-acre farm in Southern Oregon. And he was buried on our farm. He always was a part of my existence because me and my other younger siblings played on the rock that was over his burial site. And we talked to him and we knew his name and he was always a part of our family and continues to be. My own children know about him. Those intersections of my identity is how I got involved in this work. For me, I don't feel like it's work. I feel like it's a lifestyle. I feel like it's a calling. I feel like it's a spiritual connection that I have with the world. It's really important to me that folks who have been oppressed, you know, in whatever way that that works, receive equitable health care. And honestly, it's a hill that I'm willing to die on. People talk about like, what are things that you're willing to? And, and this for me is one of those things. 
What a background. I have this flash of what it must have been like to sit at your dining room table for family <laughs> dinner. And yeah. I'm, I am sorry, obviously, to hear about your baby brother and what that was like for your family, particularly your parents. But it sounds like they just wove it all in. Huge difference. Absolutely. What's your brother's name? His name is Lazarus. And I think that that was really what my parents, right? I, I think that says something about who he was and what he meant to them, even though they didn't get to parent him in the way that they had hoped to. Wow. What do you think, Erica, are the greatest obstacles to health equity in the United mm. States today in terms of how families experience health care? Let's just focus first on families of color, the greatest barriers. And please, if you could identify those which are more actionable than some of the bigger things like, you know, I don't know. Like changing the whole healthcare system. I really believe that this work and the way that we undo this system of white supremacy of which healthcare was built upon and continues to engage in is that we have to start with ourselves. The greatest thing that we can do with patients and the families that we're working with is acknowledging that we all hold isms. And since we're talking about families of color, that we all hold racism because we are working within a system that has historically been racist and continues to be for many patients and families. So if we can just start there and recognize that every family of color that walks through the halls or walks through the doors of a healthcare system or a clinic or that sort of thing are entering into that space fully within their identities, whether or not they have a conscious awareness or not, right? And it's how we treat them, we being the system, because I'm also part of the system, right? It's how we treat them from their first moment of contact. So if we can start with ourselves, we can identify ways in which maybe we are perpetuating harm as individuals who are part of this larger system, whether it's that a family comes up to the reception desk or a patient comes up to the reception desk and the receptionist doesn't acknowledge them, but then acknowledges a family they may have a racially congruent identity with. So often people of color are invisible. I think probably every person of color can tell you about a time when they've been invisible within a system. And so it's making sure that we see the person, truly see the person who is standing in front of us that we acknowledge them in a respectful and inclusive way, which, you know, maybe, hello, good morning, how are you? Nice to see you today. What can I help you with? It can be those little micro interactions that can begin to set a tone within a system, treating folks with respect. It's also about recognizing that we have internalized racism. If we can acknowledge that that is a common experience that we all hold, right, and we can openly talk about it, I think we're so worried about, especially within systems, we're so worried about being seen as racist that there are times, and I call this, and I'm going to write about this one day, Blythe, <laughs> the shame spiral. Oh, no, I said the wrong thing. Oh, my gosh, I'm such a bad person. Does this mean that I'm racist? Instead, it's interrupting that shame spiral and saying, okay, I made a mistake. And now how do I be accountable to that mistake? Oh, I'm sorry, you know, Mr. So-and-so, I realized that I looked past you at the person behind you. 
I apologize for that. And I will do better next time. Because so often people of color, Black people, we don't get that accountability piece. Folks aren't necessarily accountable about the harm that they've perpetuated. Instead, they get into this shame spiral and that stops the conversation. Whereas if we're accountable to the harm that we perpetuated, even if we think it was like a little tiny thing, right? Sometimes those little tiny things, they build up over time and then it becomes a story. And the story is, well, I don't like to go to this clinic because every time I go to them, they ignore me and they don't talk to me and they, they don't see me and they don't believe my lived experience. It's really those micro interactions because we talk about microaggressions, but there's also micro interactions that can be positive. So are you suggesting that if a family, if a patient or a caregiver feels that they have been overlooked or are not getting the respect that they deserve as the human being that they are, that they say something? For some people, that works. For other people, it doesn't work, right? Because the other thing that has been so infused into systems is hierarchy. So if I say something, maybe my worry might be they're not going to treat me fairly or they're not going to treat my child fairly. Some of us are very comfortable saying something, but that's not true for everybody. Again, the onus really has to be on those of us who work within systems that have been oppressive, recognizing there is a family of color in front of me. They may have had these experiences. So I am going to treat them the same way that I would treat somebody who's racially congruent with me. Do you think, given the history of racism in this country, that we need to be extra attentive, extra outgoing towards families of color? Because I've had conversations with white mothers who say, you know, they didn't hear me, they didn't see me. Some of this is just the balance of power thing. Some of this is just who's confident speaking up, who isn't. And then you layer the whole race thing on top of it and it gets right. Would you ever suggest that, especially when you see a patient of color, family of color, then you should be especially alert to this? Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that, Blythe, and I love that you're asking this question, because it can also come across as seeming performative. And so, so we have to be very careful about how we interact with all folks. There are times when I will be talking to somebody and I'm like, they are almost like over enunciating their anti-racism. You know what I'm saying? Like overdoing it because I'm a black person in front of them. I'm very well attuned to that, and I believe that a lot of the patients and the families that we work with are very attuned with that. So that's why I think that it has to be a culture shift. This is the pie in the sky, right? It has to be a culture shift within organizations, starting with when you walk through the front door, how do we greet everybody? What artwork is on the wall? is the artwork that's on the wall inclusive? If I walk into a space and all I see is pictures with white faces, I know that this space isn't for me. When we think about inclusivity and anti-racism, we have to think about the culture and the environment and our individual complicity to it. I love that. And in some ways, it's not that complicated. And in other ways, it's undoing all the things we don't even know that are happening that are happening. When you were practicing as a clinical social worker, can you give examples of 
how racism would show up in the dynamic between clinician and patient family from both sides help people see what this looks like. Sometimes it's in coded language that we as clinicians don't even know that we're using. You know, we could have two families and I'm just going to use black and white, right? We could have a black family and a white family and each of the children in the family has the exact same diagnosis. One of the white parents strongly advocates for their child and everybody talks about like, oh, isn't this parent just such an amazing advocate for their child? And the Black family is doing the exact same thing, but they're seen as always questioning us. They don't trust us. All the variables can be exactly the same except for race. It's so embedded in us. We may not even recognize that we're treating these two families different. So when I was a bedside clinician, and honestly now as a leader who isn't doing clinical work, you know, our interdisciplinary team meeting I will still name like, oh, this is interesting because weren't we just talking about another family whose child had the same diagnosis and this is how they were being talked about? And I would do that as a bedside clinician. I do that as a leader. Our team at Seattle Children's has really infused equity into our interdisciplinary team meeting so that we can identify those places because health equity is not just a deficit. It's also like, I so identify with this family, and I may not be aware that I identify with this family. I'm giving them more. I'm spending more time with them instead of the quote-unquote difficult family down the hall because this family feels familiar to me in identity versus this family doesn't feel familiar to me. I love that you're talking about comfort and familiarity because I just think that so much of this is just what it means to be a human being. And I'm just being provocative here because I think that it is understandable for a person to want to lean into the things that feel more comfortable and familiar Mm -hmm. and to lean away from the things that feel more difficult, regardless Mm -hmm. of what those issues are, whether it's because I recognize you, you remind me of my mother or everything about you makes me feel there before the grace of God. Because that's human nature. And the job is already so hard. Right. How do you do that? I probably say this phrase, I don't know how many times a week. In order to do health equity work, in order to do anti-racism and anti-oppression work, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. We just have to be. Because it's impossible to be culturally competent. We're never going to be experts in every possible culture that there is. Because culture is broad and vast, but it's also incredibly individual. It can be incredibly individual to this parent versus this parent within the same family, right? To this family system, to this community, to this and so on and so forth. So we have to push through that discomfort and we have to be willing to, again, just understand the discomfort is a part of this. Our division head, Jennifer Kett, will often talk about building our equity muscle I always use this analogy and sometimes people laugh at me about it, but like if I'm going to go take a French cooking class, when I walk in the door and I know nothing about French cooking other than the fact that I want to take a French cooking class, the cooking instructor isn't expecting me to be an expert at this, right? I have to practice and hone my skills. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. And I think the same is true in health equity work and in anti-racism, anti-oppression work. We're going to make mistakes. We just need to find a way of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's hard. 
it's hard in systems in which we're expected to be experts. But if we can kind of take a step back and recognize that in this work, we're never going to be experts. In the absence of lots of time, of adequate time, because I know the lack of time is one of the big enemies that plagues our healthcare system. What are ways for clinicians to help families feel seen, heard, in versus what might a family expect? What should a family expect in that clinical encounter? I think transparency can go a really long way. Walking into the room, greeting the patient by name, that's one way. I think another way is through saying, you know, I only have 15 minutes for today's visit. And so I know we're going to go through things quickly. There's probably going to be some things that I'm going to miss. Can I connect you to team member A, B, C, or D who may be able to have a little bit more time? This is internal work, right? It's not a family's responsibility or a patient's responsibility that we be comfortable. They don't have a choice. But we do. I mean, it may not feel like we do, but we actually do, right? We could go into a different line of work. We could work in a different clinic. We could do, like, there's lots of choice. If you have a loved one, if you're a family or a patient and you have a serious illness, you don't have a choice. And you're entering into a system with a level of vulnerability that others don't have. That's part of the power differential, right? And I know that so often, you know, I hear clinicians and even my, I've even felt this way. Wow, this family, they're not appreciating what I'm doing. They're not appreciating how hard I'm working for them. Whatever story we tell ourselves, it's not their responsibility to keep us comfortable. We're human. Sometimes it doesn't feel good. For instance, I can have a family member raise their voice at me and sound angry with me. And probably 80% of the time, it doesn't make me uncomfortable because I understand that they are in a frustrating situation. So I don't personalize it. There are the times, of course, where maybe it actually isn't safe. And I think that's the other thing that we need to get rid of is this whole idea of safety. And not in terms of physical safety, but in terms of emotional safety, right? A family who is frustrated in front of us does not necessarily mean they're an unsafe family. We expect families to come in and learn the language and the culture of the medical system. It's literally like learning in a whole nother language. You know, and I think about when I started working in healthcare, I mean, it was overwhelming. And I wasn't coming in as a parent with a child with a serious illness. It's not their job to like us or to be comfortable with their situation. I'm not saying this is easy to do. From a clinician perspective, I'm not saying this is easy to do in any way, shape, or form. You know, it can feel really bad when you're doing everything that you possibly can and a family or a patient still isn't happy. But they are living in a situation that may not always be happy. I think it's important that we not expect our patients and families to perform for us. The visit's going to end for us. 15, 20 minutes, the visit's going to end for us. For them, they're going to walk out the door and it remains their reality. I love that. It's not the patient or family's job to perform for us. It's not. I remember this from my own time as a mother advocating. 
I have all the privileges that would make the bar pretty low for me. I still felt like I was performing. Right. Um, This power dynamic is so real and automatically there's a lack of equity. Wouldn't it be amazing if every clinician, this is obviously completely impossible, could spend a month in the shoes of a family, you know, that was disenfranchised and said, follow this experience. The way it will change the way you practice medicine, I'm sure. I've talked to medical residents feeling like they have to apologize to the patient for the hospital system, or they feel like responsible, like this is a very inhumane system. And I feel like they're blaming it on me. And I'm like, no, to your point of transparency, just say, this is hard for me too. Like, I'm so sorry that this is what it's like for you. And I wish it were otherwise. And you're not responsible. You're not the CEO of the hospital. And it's not your responsibility to own all the bad shit that's happening. It absolutely isn't. But sometimes that acknowledgement can go a long, long way. I've done bereavement work with families whose child has died. One of the things that I have learned over the years is that sometimes just holding that space, I mean, this is true in palliative care as well, right? That holding that space sometimes is enough. Acknowledging that this is a really horrific situation is enough because so often the patients and the families that we work with in serious illness care don't hear that. They don't get that acknowledgement of how difficult this actually is. Even if I don't understand it, like I haven't gone through it myself, I can still see and I can still feel as another human being how difficult and traumatic and all of the things that this is. A new life-limiting diagnosis or a new diagnosis of a serious illness. You know, but we're so good as clinicians, and I'm saying putting good in quotes, We're so good at saying, okay, we figured out what's going on. Your child has cancer and here's what we need to do next. But what would happen if we paused between here's this incredibly life-changing, horrific information and here's what the plan needs to be? What if we paused? What if we paused and we said, I can imagine how difficult it is to hear all of this. I know that this is going to be life-changing for your child, for what your hopes and goals and expectations for your child are. Just to even stop and validate that, I've gone through this with my own family members. My father died in an accident five years ago, and I actually have started incorporating this into my health equity work. It's a Black man from Jim Crow South, and he's in a level one trauma center. I had the resources and the privilege to know how the system works. So from the second people walked into that room, the second clinicians walked into that room, I did everything I could to humanize him. This is my dad. His name is Forrest. This is who he is. He is very loved by his children and grandchildren, right? He's not just a diagnosis that was laying unconscious in a bed. Not everybody has that privilege of understanding both sides of the system. Do you know the book Slow Medicine by Victoria? Mm. I went back and listened to an interview with Kate Bowler interviewing her. She talked about how she was a renowned author at that point and her father was in the hospital and she couldn't get him the care that she felt he needed. The doctors wouldn't pay attention. She was like, wait, I am a doctor. I'm doing all the things and you're still not. (laughs) Right. Oh my God. If that doctor is screwed in that moment, And I think that that's where the system overhaul, which I know we're not talking about today, an overall shift in healthcare culture has to happen. 
you know, I think about the medical staff that I support on my team and all the metrics and the number of bills that they have to drop, all of this sort of thing that kind of, in some ways, I want to say it's a necessary evil, but I wonder, is it actually a necessary evil? If we looked at a different way of engaging in healthcare in this country, maybe the experience would be very different for all of us. If I'm the clinician and I'm expected to drop X number of bills a day and I'm already behind and I know that I'm going to, quote unquote, get in trouble. I mean, that's traumatic in and of itself. That's not why clinicians get into healthcare. I have had some clinicians say to me recently that they feel like the level of mistrust that families of color have towards the doctors has gone up. And the people who've mentioned this to me have not, they haven't complained as in like, why has that happened? Because they they understand why it's happened. They've said it has complicated the work of trying to get to a yes Mm -hmm. or comfortable place for both parties in the shared understanding of the best interest of the child. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Shared decision-making, building trust in this messy space that we're talking about. Yeah, I think we spent a lot of time today kind of talking about that and about the need for transparency, right? And the need for us to be able to ask, what is your experience with the healthcare system? Good, bad, and ugly. I don't want to just hear the good. I want to hear if you've had a negative experience with the healthcare system so that hopefully we can do better. There's still going to be patients and families who don't trust us. If we are authentically asking that and, you know, saying, I have a couple of minutes, I really want to hear your story and your experience before we jump into what it is that we need to talk about. Setting the parameters for what it is, because we can't promise that we're going to meet with them for an hour. Maybe if you're a palliative care team, you can, or a hospice team. Just in general, in medicine, that's not the way that it works. If you understand where I'm coming from and I understand where you're coming from, This can happen in very brief snippets, right? This can happen again. I have a couple of minutes. I really want to hear this before we move forward. Engaging authentically. We can tell when it's performative. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.